morning, everyone. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that your son has taken away our spiritual leprosy so that we can be reconciled to you, that we can press into your throne room where we receive mercy and grace. I pray, Lord, that this would be a time such as that, where we would almost see ourselves as Mary sitting at your feet to be taught and to be fed. And so I pray, Lord, that you would use this time to its fullest. I thank you for the sanctifying and cleansing work that your word accomplishes. And do pray for that to be the case, Lord, and that even during this, this time, as we continue the worship service or the preaching of your word, that it would be one of becoming more like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for any unbelievers who have joined us, that they'd be convicted of their sin, or convicted of their leprosy, we might say, spiritually speaking. See their need to be cleansed of it, that today would be the day of salvation for them. That you'd open their hearts to the gospel, that they'd repent and believe, and that for believers who are here, Lord, that we would be thankful for Christ and that you would continue to just help us become more like him. I pray, Lord, that as we look at these verses, that the beauty of them would be revealed and that my weaknesses or failures as a preacher, as a pastor, wouldn't uh, restrain your verses from having the powerful effect that they can in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good to see all of you. This morning's sermon is titled, With God All Things Are Possible, Right. So we're working our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel, and we find ourselves at Luke 18, 26. Now, by a show of hands, do we have any Princess Bride fans? All right, very good. So throughout the movie, Sicilian boss Vizzini repeatedly describes the unfolding events as what? Huh? Is, is it Chuck? Is Chuck the only one that said that? So the Sicilian boss Vizzini repeatedly sees events and describes them as what? Inconceivable. So when Wesley, known as the man in black, also known as the dread pirate Roberts, is climbing a rope, Vicini cuts the rope to send Wesley to his death, but of course, because he's the hero of a movie, or of the movie, he ends up clinging to the cliff. And Vicini looks down and says what? Inconceivable. Now, the honorable swordsman Inigo Montoya says, You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And I mention this because when people take verses out of context, that's what I think. You keep using this verse, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And this brings us to lesson one. You keep using that verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, I know this isn't really... A lesson, but you get the point. And I thought that if I made this a lesson, then hopefully you will remember this for the rest of your lives every time someone uses a verse out of context. And in fact, you can even look at them, point, and say, What? You keep using that verse, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. I'm going to give you a few examples with some of the most misquoted verses. On January 12, 2013, during the NFL divisional playoffs, the number four ranked Baltimore Ravens, who were 10 and 6, played on the road against the number one ranked Denver Broncos, who were 13 and 3. And so the Baltimore Ravens were huge underdogs. But they ended up defeating the Broncos, who had actually earlier defeated them during the regular season. So the Broncos were heavily favored to win. 
The game went into double overtime before the Ravens upset the Broncos in what came to be known as the Mile High Miracle. After the game, a very emotional Ray Lewis, the Ravens Hall of Fame linebacker, was interviewed, and this is what he said. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. No weapon, no weapon, no weapon. God is amazing, and when you believe in him, man believes in the possible, but God believes in the impossible. Now here's what Ray Lewis was trying to quote. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So this is one of the best sounding verses. I mean, who would not want to believe that there would be no weapon fashioned or formed that could ever prosper against them? Or who would not believe that no slander or that no word brought against them um, would, would any, wouldn't want to believe that every accusation against them would fail, you might say. So the context of this verse is God destroying Israel's enemies in the future. So what Ray Lewis did was he made his team, the Baltimore Ravens, into the nation of Israel. And the team that they were playing, the Denver Broncos, he made into Israel's enemies. And then if we continue this, perhaps every weapon that's fashioned against the Baltimore Ravens could refer to the Denver Broncos pro bowlers. That could be quarterback Peyton Manning, offensive tackle Ryan Clady, cornerback champ bailey and linebacker von miller and then maybe every tongue that rose against the baltimore ravens could refer to the denver broncos coaching staff now although ray meant well when he said this when he quoted this verse instead of god vindicating israel against their enemies so that his promises against his covenant people could prevail Ray told the nationally televised audience that God wanted to give the Ravens victory over the Broncos. Now, I don't think as good as Isaiah 54, 17 sounds that it's actually the most popular verse among athletes. That honor goes to what verse? Any guesses? Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Did anyone say that? That is like every athlete, I mean, throughout the centuries, every athlete who's been interviewed, just imagine athletes have been interviewed on national television for centuries. That is the verse that they love to quote. Well-meaning athletes, after winning the big game, like Ray Lewis, they're excited, and to their credit, they want to give God credit, and so they love to quote this verse. Star running back Adrian Peterson, he tore his ACL. I mean, those are like the, those three letters, ACL, drive fear into the, the most courageous athlete because they know it's a career-ending injury. So Adrian Peterson tears his ACL, and he said, this is a blessing in disguise. I'm going to come back stronger and better than I was before. Say it with me. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13, it's incredibly popular. You can find it on posters and other inspirational art, keychains, rings, buttons, t-shirts, stickers, postcards, bracelets, handbags, you name it. You can find that verse on it. And Philippians 4.13 is so popular because, like Isaiah 54.17, it sounds wonderful. It sounds like you're going to be able to do anything that you've ever wanted to do, and Christ is the one who's going to be able to, or is going to strengthen you to do so. 
So to many people, this verse becomes a blank check for whatever you want in life. It's a slogan of personal empowerment. It's this declaration of self-achievement and ambition, accomplishment. It's this motivating motto for prosperity and success. Now, let me ask you something. If Paul meant Philippians 4.13, the way that many people understand it, that God helps you win at everything, how would you picture Paul when he wrote it? Well, he's victorious, right? He's successful. His life could not be better. I think many people would be surprised that Paul wrote Philippians 4.13 from where? From prison. Now, from an earthly perspective, it did not look like Paul was winning. It looked like he was losing, not successful, but unsuccessful. Because the verse is about contentment, and Paul meant that Christ would strengthen him to be able to handle any trial or situation he experienced, even the suffering that he was experiencing in prison. I'm going to use another athlete who did explain this verse well. So during an interview, Kurt Warner asked Tim Tebow for his favorite Bible verse. And Tim replied that it was Philippians 4.13, and then he defined it this way. Tim said, I would say the biggest thing with Philippians 4.13 is so many people, pastors included, believe the verse means I can do lots of things. What I believe it really means in context is I can do all things, meaning I can handle all things. Whatever position God's put me in, maybe it's poverty, maybe it's sickness, my child is sick, God is giving me the strength to handle that. So I think it's more talking about handling adversity than handling praise or accomplishing much. It's talking about I can do all things, meaning I can handle all negative things because of Christ. And that's a pretty good definition. Tim had a tremendous college career. He was the first sophomore to win the most prestigious college award, the Heisman Trophy. He was an important part of two national championship teams. If anyone could have misquoted Philippians 4.13, it was Tim Tebow. In other words, he had lots of big games that he was part of winning that he could have turned and quoted this verse, but he still maintained a correct understanding of it. In fact, it would actually make a lot more sense if a major athlete quoted Philippians 4.13 after losing the big game and explaining why they still remain content despite such a, a heartbreaking loss for them. Now, I know that I sound critical of people misusing this verse. And you could perhaps even be saying, well, Pastor Scott, how can you be criticizing these athletes like Ray Lewis and Adrian Peterson who are simply trying to glorify God? How could you give them a hard time? Well, I get it, but whenever people misinterpret Scripture, there are consequences. Let me say that one more time. Whenever I'm not denying their sincerity or that they were well-meaning, but whenever people misinterpret Scripture... And really, the larger the platform or larger audience that can be reached, the worse these consequences become, it is problematic. Because people are left with nagging questions. Let's say baby Christians. Or let's even say people who are not yet Christians. Listen to this athlete that they respect and they think things like this. First, was God really concerned with who won that game? I mean, world hunger, people being... Uh, killed by diseases, uh, wars that are costing people their lives and their homes or the lives of their children? Did God really care that much 
about the Super Bowl. Did the winning team win because they happened to pray more than the losing team? Or did the losing team lose because that team happened to have more pagans or atheists than the winning team? I want you to picture something. Let's say there's a young man and he's watching his favorite athlete on television. So this is what he thinks. Well, this is wonderful. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am going to win at everything in life because of Christ. But then what happens? He goes out and, <laughs> like we all do, loses. In fact, I think most of us as parents would acknowledge that our children can grow much more through uh, a loss than a win or much more through defeat than through victory. So we can even covet the losses that our kids experience because of the growth that can be uh, experienced as a result. So this young man loses, and then what does he wonder? Well, he says, did I not have as much faith as that athlete on television, or did God not love me as much as he loved that athlete? God must have been pleased with him to give him that victory, but God must be pleased, displeased with me because I've lost, or maybe, which might even be the worst case, possibility is the young man thinks that Christ just wasn't strong enough to give me victory. Christ gives me the strength, and Christ, I can experience, have, have every, every success, but apparently Christ didn't have the strength to give me the success in this area. Or imagine something considerably more serious than a football game is at stake. Let's say there's a young man, and he's lying in a hospital bed, and he's dying of a disease, and he has Philippians 4.13 put on the wall over his bed. And so someone walks into the room, sees this, misunderstands the verse, and says to the young man, well, this is wonderful. You must have so much faith. That's great. You know that Christ is going to heal you. Now, if this young man understands the verse, he says, I don't know whether Christ is going to heal me, heal me but what I do know is Christ will give me the strength that I need for any outcome. And to me, it's like Daniel's friends when they were threatened with the fiery furnace. I've always really loved their response. Daniel 3:17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, but if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, the reason that I wanted to share these verses this morning is that we have reached one of the other most popular verses that people misunderstand. And it is Luke 18:27. if you want to look there with me. What is impossible with man is possible with God. People love to loosely quote this verse, and they'll say, with God all things are possible, which is how it's worded in the parallel account in Matthew 19, 26. And I get why people say this. In fact, I would even say that to misquote this verse is actually better than to misquote the other verses because when people misquote this verse, at least they are trying to exalt God because the idea is he is omnipotent. He can do anything. The other two verses, when they're misquoted, Isaiah 54, 17, in Philippians 4.13, they're about us, but this verse is about God. It exalts him. Who would not want to do that? Or who would not want to make God look better and say that he can do anything? But is that really what this verse is saying? No, it is not. 
The verse sounds like it's saying that God helps people do anything, but we know things that it is impossible for God to do. It is impossible for God to help people sin. It is impossible for God to help people do anything that is against his will. And so even if we talk about with God all things are possible, we have to recognize that even that means it is not possible for God to have us do anything that would conflict with his will, or we could go above him and say, God, the Father's will, whose will Christ was fulfilling or bringing to fulfillment through his earthly ministry. So if that's not what the verse is saying, what is it saying? Well, to correctly interpret this verse, which is the case with every other verse, we must look at the context. And this morning's verses flow from last week's verses, so we need to briefly review. I'll go through this quickly. If you want to understand any of these verses in greater depth, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. So Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler who is sincere. He wants to go to heaven. He comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. He was convinced he was righteous, so Jesus tries to help him see his sinfulness by exposing his covetousness to him. So Luke 18, 22, when Jesus heard this, that this man believed he was righteous or believed that he'd kept all God's commandments perfectly or well enough to go to heaven, Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. We talked last week that this was descriptive for the rich young ruler, not prescriptive for us. Or in other words, we don't necessarily have to sell everything we have and give it to the poor to be Jesus's disciples but the part that is we that does apply to us is just like the rich young ruler had to repent of his covetousness there are things in our lives that we need to repent of repentance looks different for everyone for the rich young ruler repentance looked like overcoming covetousness and giving away his belongings for us to repent or what are we supposed to put off maybe it's getting rid of all the alcohol in the house or maybe it's canceling any subscription that allows us to look at anything that we shouldn't look at or maybe it's not going to that or cutting putting off that relationship that has been ungodly or unholy for us and so repentance look this way for the rich young ruler look but more than likely looks different for all of us but the reality is we still have things to repent of the verse 23 the rich young ruler seems not to want to repent at least at this moment it says when he heard these things he became very sad for he was extremely rich so presented with a choice between his possessions and jesus he chose his possessions verse 24 jesus seeing that he the rich young ruler had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god now there are two applications for these verses from our lord the most obvious application we focused on last week one, one application is obvious one application is less obvious the obvious application is that it's hard for rich people to go to heaven when jesus said this the obvious application from his words is that it's difficult or harder for rich people to enter the kingdom of god than for poor people it is not to say it is impossible for rich people to go to heaven maybe some of the greatest people in scripture come to mind who were wealthy in the old testament abraham job solomon the new testament joseph of arimathea more than likely lydia because she was a seller of purple was wealthy probably every person in the early church who had church in their home 
was a wealthy person because they had a large enough home to be able to have that many people over. So it's definitely possible for rich people to be godly or to inherit the kingdom of God, but Jesus makes the point that it is harder for them than poor people because of some of the temptations or struggles that they're going to face that non-wealthy people do not face. Now, and if you want to hear more about that, we talked about it last week. But the other lesser or less obvious application from Jesus' words deals with the common belief in the day about rich people. The common belief in Jesus' day is that rich people go to heaven. If you have a study Bible, more than likely you're going to see something about that. Almost every commentary that I read this past week, and I looked at quite a few of them, made this point that the belief in Jesus' day was that rich people go to heaven, or rich people inherit the kingdom of God. And there's two reasons, it seems, based on all the commentaries I read, that people were convinced of this. First, people believed that if you were rich, it was evidence of God's what? Favor, yep, toward you, his pleasure with you. The richer people were, were, the more righteous they must be. The happier God must be with them because of how good they are. If people have money, God is pleased with them. They're going to heaven. So think about it. If God was displeased with people, why would he give them so much money? Now, we know this isn't true, but in Jesus' day, they didn't. The second reason people in Jesus' day believed rich people went to heaven is their money I'm not kidding, allowed them to be more righteous. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Rich people would have more money to give, so they look more righteous. Rich people would have more money for sacrifices and offerings than poor people. Even though there were, there were allowances in the law for poor people to offer, let's say, birds or things that were cheaper than bulls or oxen, there was still this belief the rich people could offer so much or sacrifice so much that it allowed them to be more righteous. John MacArthur explained it this way. The Jews believed that with alms a person, excuse me, the Jews believed that with alms a person purchased salvation as recorded in the Talmud. So the more wealth that one had, the more alms he could give, the more sacrifices and offerings he could offer, thus purchasing redemption. But Jesus dispelled this belief a few times. Go ahead and just turn a few chapters to the right because we're so close. I'll go ahead and have you look at it to chapter 21. Jesus repeatedly dispelled this thinking in his day, and here's one of the most familiar instances of him doing so. Verse 1, Luke 21, 1, Jesus looked up, saw the rich. Notice this. Jesus sees the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, those looking on, including even Jesus' disciples, believe that these rich people are also the most righteous people. And Jesus sees this poor widow putting into small copper coins, which the disciples would believe this, Jesus, or the Lord, God must be displeased with this woman. I mean, there's a, there are a few things this woman had going against her. First, she's poor. Second, she's a widow. I don't even know if she had children to help her. And so they easily look at her and all she's suffering or all of the trials that she must bear and assume that she must not be very pleasing in God's sight or why would God allow her to experience so much, so much suffering. 
so many trials. Verse 3, Jesus surprises them and he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they contributed out of their abundance and she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And so Jesus very quickly reverses their thinking and says that this woman is actually more pleasing to the Lord, this poor woman, than all of these rich people. So he makes the point that a poor person could give more than rich people, dispelling the belief that the richest, richest were the most righteous simply because they gave more. Now turn back to Luke 18. And while you turn there, just listen to this. So if we can understand the thinking of the day, if we understand that in Jesus' day, rich people go to heaven, or let me say it like this, the belief in Jesus' day is that it's easier for rich people to go to heaven, or nobody is as guaranteed to go to heaven as much as rich people, then you can understand just how shocking Jesus' words were when he said that it's hard for rich people to go to heaven, and in fact, it would be even easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, another example of Jesus using hyperbole. He frequently used exaggeration to make points. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, have faith, and you can get to uproot this tree or move this mountain. And this is one other example where the point is very clear that it's difficult or hard for rich people to go to heaven, completely contradicting the belief in his day. And so when the disciples hear this, what are they going to think? When the disciples hear Jesus say this, what are they going to think? How are we going to get to heaven? If you're going to tell us that the people with the most likely chance of going to heaven find it difficult to go to heaven, then how are we going to be saved? Which is exactly what they asked in the next verse. Luke 18, 26. Those who heard it, they heard what Jesus said about rich people, and they said then who can be saved? If rich people are barely saved, how are others who lack this sign of God's blessing, or how are the rest of us going to be saved? Warren Wearsby explains their question like this. The disciples were shocked when Jesus announced that it was difficult for rich people to be saved because the Jews believed that riches were a mark of God's blessing, and they reasoned, if rich people can't be saved, what hope is there for the rest of us? Now, believe it or not, the disciples are actually in the perfect place right now. They are believing at this point exactly what Jesus wants them to believe. Their belief about rich people has now been corrected, and essentially the disciples are believing the same thing we want everyone to believe, that nobody can be saved by works, human effort, wealth, And so with the disciples doubting that anyone can be saved, Jesus delivers this well-known statement, Luke 18, 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And if we consider the context, we can correctly interpret this verse. It is impossible for man to go to heaven by, fill in the blank, anything associated with man, giving enough money, providing enough sacrifices, providing enough offerings, giving enough alms, essentially purchasing salvation through human effort or human works. Essentially, it is impossible for man to be saved through anything he could do. 
So instead, it means it is only possible for man to be saved with God, with God, by divine grace. And this brings us to lesson two. With God, is it, with God it is possible for man to be saved by divine grace. With God, it is possible for man to be saved by divine grace. Now, I'm, I, I don't know if you guys think I go slow through scripture i think john macarthur had like three ver- three sermons not three verses he had like three sermons like the impossibility of salvation part one part two and part three so i like to go and try to listen to other sermons on passages and i was like i can't believe this this guy's got three sermons just on this one verse but he really wanted to unpack this for his for his church and see the Im- impossibility of man being saved apart from god that's what jesus is saying and if you don't understand anything else from this sermon just understand this point that jesus wanted to drive home to the disciples which is why i want to drive it home to you that it is impossible for man to be saved without god it is an impossibility for man to ever be able to do anything that would allow him to be righteous enough to go to heaven we do not contribute anything to our salvation at every point beginning middle end we are completely dependent on god this is what it means in hebrews 12 2 where it says that the lord is the founder and perfecter of our faith or some translations say the author and finisher of our faith it is a great question to ask people when you're wondering about their understanding of the gospel why would god let you into heaven or how would you get to go to heaven I think I shared with you, I can't remember if I shared in this, I believe it was a sermon when I met with the Mormons, and I said, what would you tell people if you were going door to door, and they asked you how to be saved, and the Mormons talked about works, what we contribute, that God sort of kicks in after we've done everything we can do. And so it's evident that they do not understand the gospel as much as they think they do. They're walking around going door to door as, as much as I love these young men, and I mean that, God has almost given me a supernatural affection for the Mormon missionaries that I get to meet, the, the fondness that I have for them, but it is deeply disturbing to me that they are going around door-to-door preaching false gospels, fe- preaching a false gospel to anyone. When we consider the language of Galatians 1, that if anyone was to preach a false gospel, that person should be what? A curse there i think it's galatians 1 8 9 there could not be stronger language that paul would use for people preaching a false gospel which is why regardless of their sincerity or their kindness or their morality they are preaching something that god says they should be accursed for and so that's why any opportunity you have to talk to them try to share the gospel to them with them the disciples here we're being told the truth of ephesians 2 8 and 9 by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of god it is not a result of works or wealth or riches or sacrifices or offerings or whatever you want to say there so that no one may boast now here's the thing if we understand that and this is this could be the exact same question that you've had after you became a christian and you're sacrificing for the lord or you're serving the lord Peter has the question that we commonly have. The disciples learn that they're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And so, what do they wonder? Well, they wonder about their works. 
It's like, okay, okay, we're not saved by works, but what about the works we've done? What about all we've sacrificed? What do we get for it? In other words, Peter's kind of like, I sure hope I'm not doing all this for nothing. And maybe you thought that too. Oh, okay, I'm saved by grace through faith. I am convinced of the gospel, but what about all the things I do? So Peter asks that. Look at verse 28. See, we have left our homes and followed you. Or we've done all this. We've sacrificed all this. The ESV and New King James Peter said, see, to Jesus. I mean, just think about this. In the Amplified, he said, look, as though he's almost commanding Jesus. My, my personal favorite is probably the NASB, in which, who normally says, behold? <laughs> Jesus says, you've got Peter telling Jesus, behold. Behold is like when you're trying to teach someone something, right? Behold, or pay attention, or notice this. And Jesus can say that to us. He can say it to whoever he wants. You've got Peter telling Jesus, behold. Pay attention, Lord. Don't miss this. I mean, can you believe? Well, actually, because it's Peter, you probably can believe that he said it, right? If it was someone else, maybe you wouldn't believe it. But because it's Peter, who's always opening his mouth to either a home run or a strikeout, he says, behold, Lord, we've left everything, our homes, and followed you. Don't miss this. Behold how amazing we are, is essentially what he said. More than likely, Peter's statement was also stemming or flowing from the account with the rich young ruler, because what did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Basically, do what Peter is claiming to have done. Sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Well, Peter's like, we didn't just sell all we had, we even got rid of our homes. I mean, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, get rid of your possessions. Peter says, we didn't just get rid of our possessions, we even got rid of our houses. We have left everything to follow you. And so he's wondering, and more than likely the other disciples were too, because Peter was frequently the spokesperson saying what all of them were, were thinking. And at times, even when it says that Peter said something in another gospel, it'll tell us that the other disciples were asking the same thing. They're like, what's in this for us? Although Peter should not have said, see, look, or behold, there are two reasons that I don't think that Peter's statement is that bad. First, I believe God does want us thinking about our heavenly or eternal rewards. So if you have wondered, what do I get for what I'm doing now besides eternal life, although obviously that should be enough, I do not think you need to feel bad about that. Because Jesus told us, to think about or look forward to those rewards, which I don't think he would do if he didn't want us thinking about them or, be, or if it was bad for us to think about them. For example, Matthew six nineteen, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so it seems that Jesus wants us looking forward to and being motivated by our heavenly rewards. He tells us about these rewards, which tells me he wants us to think about them. We should work for heavenly rewards. And if we do, if we do what Jesus said there in the Sermon on the Mount, then we will have a heavenly focus. That's what he said. Where, he concludes that by saying, where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. In other words, Jesus says, if you're thinking about your heavenly rewards, that's where you're going to be focused. To be, to be honest with you, I think the bigger problem for many people or for many of us is that we don't think about our heavenly rewards enough. The bigger problem isn't that we wonder about them. The bigger problem is we just don't care. We're just consumed with what we have here on earth. I know that's the case for me frequently. The second reason that I don't think Peter's statement is that bad is that Jesus did not rebuke him for it. Instead, Jesus encouraged Peter and the other disciples that their sacrifices were not in vain. Now, maybe, maybe Jesus is just accommodating Peter's immaturity here, but I don't think that. That would be speaking into silence. What we see from the text, if we let the text speak for itself, is that Peter said something, and Jesus did not rebuke him. There's no indication that Jesus was displeased with Peter. And there were other times that Jesus did display his displeasure toward Peter, but not here. Instead, in verse 29, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So basically, Jesus reassured Peter that they didn't have anything to worry about, that he and the other disciples and us, by extension, have nothing to worry about. We will be rewarded for our sacrifices on this side of heaven. So if you've ever worried, what about the sacrifices I'm making for Christ? Which, to be honest, I tend to think, for many of us, don't compare to the sacrifices some people have made throughout history or even some people are making in other parts of the world. When we start thinking about what we sacrificed, I feel like we're corrected when we think about persecuted Christians. Should be. I don't know about you, but the moment that I start feeling sorry for myself or thinking about what I've sacrificed, if I can think about Fox's Book of Martyrs, which if you've never read, you might consider reading even some of it. It can be a hard read. Or think about what other Christians are being persecuted for. Suddenly our sacrifices seem pretty insignificant. And keep that in mind for a moment. But now focus on what Jesus said here, that there's rewards in store. He told the disciples that not just they, but anyone who sacrificed for him will be rewarded. Now, we know there's rewards in the next life, but one of the interesting things that Jesus said here in verse 30 is that there's rewards in this time or in this life, or not just in heaven, but on this side of heaven. And so what rewards might Jesus be referring to in this life if we live for him or sacrifice for him? Well, I did want to comment on this because it's in the verse, but I have to acknowledge that I'm being speculative because Jesus didn't tell us what those rewards were. So I'm trying to comment on this by considering other places in Scripture that let us know what we're blessed with by serving Christ. So here's what came to mind for me. In this life, we're able to experience joy during trials. We're able to experience spiritual growth. We're able to have peace that surpasses understanding during difficult situations. We're given wisdom from God. We're able to have confidence that God is working all things together for good, even when we can't see that. We're able to have a church family. How many people have come to the church after losing earthly relationships and then able to, for some people, it was the case God's redeemed the scenario. I won't spend much time in it because most of you are familiar with it, but 
For me, when I became a Christian, it was the loss of my earthly family, who then God brought in to become part of my church family. But for many people, they could lose earthly family members, but then how much greater of a church family, how many more brothers and sisters they receive through the body of Christ. Now, I want to ask you a question to set up the following verses and just sort of think for a moment about what I was saying, that we start to think about what we're sacrificing, and then it starts to seem insignificant when compared with what other Christians sacrificed, especially those who have been persecuted. So have you ever been talking about a trial you were experiencing or discussing your suffering with someone, and then you learn about someone else's trial and suddenly your trial seems very small? Have you ever been sharing about something difficult you're going through and then you learn about something someone else is going through and suddenly what you're going through seems very insignificant? In fact, you might have even been convicted that you considered your trial to be a trial. For example, you're sharing about the bad day you're having at work, but then you hear about someone who lost their job. Or you're sharing about your internet being down all day, but then you learn about the people in Maui who are losing their homes or their lives in the fire. You're sharing about the rough day with your kids, and then you learn about someone who lost a child. So I use Outlook for email, and this happened with me. I was humbled uh, recently. I use Outlook for email, and my and Outlook went down. I was concerned about the emails I lost, and I spent probably two or three, probably two and a half days with unable to use my computer, turning my computer over to Microsoft for them to remotely access it to try to fix Outlook. And it's like every single person that told me it was fixed and just said, hey, once it finishes restarting or once this finishes, then you're going to be able to use it and, it, and it wouldn't work. And that went on for two and a half days. And I'll be honest, I'm feeling sorry for myself because I have matters like the sermon or meetings or Sunday school that I need to prepare for, that need to be finished, that I can't put off to the following, following week. And so as Sunday's approaching and my responsibilities are not disappearing, I'm stressed. I'm then having to work in the evening and I have time with my family. So I'm just going through this whole pity party. And right at that time, I learned about Ali Sorensen passing. And so then my heart's kind of breaking for Luke thinking about what his children are going through. And I even thought about Pastor Nathan and Jill and Ed and Francine, whose lives were dis... I'm, I, my life is disrupted in that my email goes down. Their life's disrupted in that, in that they've got to hop on a plane, fly to Texas. Pastor Nathan and Jill have to coordinate um, child care for their kids. And it just puts things in perspective. And then, have you ever had that happen? And then suddenly, you're really pretty embarrassed about feeling sorry for yourself about the sacrifice that you believe that you're making compared with what other people are going through. Now, the reason that I mention all that is because we're going to see a perfect example of it in the following verses. You've got Peter, who's talking about all that he and the other disciples have sacrificed. And just remember, when you see a verse in Scripture, you're getting highlights I believe Peter said this, but I believe he probably said much more than this. You can read conversations in Scripture that look like they were probably seconds or maybe minutes in length that were probably hours. We can guess that Jesus had conversations with his disciples that were hours in length, even though you can read through the conversation in a minute or a couple minutes. 
like the rich young ruler. I mean, Jesus very well, I don't know how long he was with him, but my suspicion is it was much longer than it looks earlier in Luke 18. So I think Peter was probably boasting about a considerable amount that he, had, he and the other disciples had sacrificed, maybe even complaining and wondering what exactly they're going to get. Well, right after that, look what Jesus shares. All that he would be sacrificing. Verse 31. Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, so it's almost like Peter said, See or behold, and now Jesus says, See or behold. We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In particular, Jesus has Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 in mind, those passages that focus on the suffering servant and Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 32, he says that the Son of Man, he's speaking in the third person, but he says he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, he's going to be mocked, shamefully treated, he's even going to be spit upon, then he's going to be flogged, and then they'll kill him. And just pause right there. And this brings us to lesson three. Jesus' sacrifice puts our sacrifices in perspective. Jesus' sacrifice puts our sacrifices in perspective. This is the sixth prophecy of Jesus' death just in Luke's gospel. There's Luke 9.22, 44, 12, 50, 13.32-33, and then Luke 17.25. You don't have to turn there. But it seems like many times when Jesus predicted his death, he would add details. So it's, you have greater revelation of his suffering with each prediction. And this time he mentions for the first time that he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. So he's referring to his trials before the Romans and the Jews, as well as his mocking and mistreatment. He provides much of the sequences of his rejection down to even being spit upon and flogged. Spurgeon said they plucked out his hair, they smote his cheeks, they spat in his face. The mockery could go no farther. It was cruel, it was cutting, it was cursed scorn. And so here's how I read this. I see Peter, perhaps, I'm being speculative when I say this, perhaps recognizing that they did what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do, and perhaps even being somewhat proud of all they'd given up, and then saying, essentially, look at all we have sacrificed. Look at all of the sacrifices we have made for you, Jesus. And then Jesus says, look at the sacrifice that I'm going to be making. And suddenly Peter's sacrifices, or any of the disciples' sacrifices, went from this down to this. And can we just be honest about something for a second? Was Jesus... Or, or excuse me, was Peter, or were the disciples' sacrifices significant? Just say yes. How many of you have given up all your possessions in your home to follow Jesus? Unless you've went over to a third world country as a missionary, you should be able to appreciate that what the 12 disciples did for Jesus was significant. They gave much. They sacrificed much. And so when G- Peter's like, hey, look at all we've done, I'm kind of like, it is impressive. A lot more than I've done. But then the moment you consider Jesus's sacrifice, Peter's sacrifices get about this big. We could wonder, how can Peter be thinking about himself considering Jesus is about to be crucified in Jerusalem? But then I think, how often do we think about ourselves 
considering Jesus went to Jerusalem and was crucified. So I don't think that Jesus said this as a rebuke to Peter. There's no indication that's the case. But we can see that no matter what Peter said, he and the disciples gave up to follow Jesus. The moment Jesus discusses what he was giving up for them or for us, what they gave up or what we give up looks insignificant. So we could be tempted to think, Jesus, I've sacrificed so much for you, friends, family, relationships, time, money, everything to follow you. Of course, that isn't even true. We haven't given up everything to follow him, but our pride allows us to think that. But the moment that we think about what Jesus has sacrificed for us, it becomes clear that we have not sacrificed that much. Jesus is not going to be a debtor to any of us. None of us have done as much for Jesus as he has done for us. <laughs> but after all Jesus suffered, we see the incredible victory. Look with me at verse 33, the rest of it. Jesus says, on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus triumphantly told his disciples that the story was not going to end with his suffering. What if he only told them about everything that he would experience, all the horrors, and left it there? Instead, he goes further. He says he'll be raised. He goes beyond the humiliation to his victory, his resurrection and glory. Verse 34, but notice this. They understood none of these things. The saying is hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. And it, I just want you to notice something. This verse says the same thing three times. They understood none of these things is the same as this saying was hidden from them, which is the same as they did not grasp what was said. Scripture could not be making it clearer that they had no understanding whatsoever of what was going to happen with Christ. Now, because the disciples didn't understand it, you could wonder why Jesus said this to them. I mean, why is he going to tell them a bunch of stuff they don't understand? Well, we get the answer in John's gospel, John 16, 4. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So they would be able to look back after the fact and remember that Jesus told them these things happened and they would be comforted at that time. Now, as far as why the truth was hidden from them, I see two possibilities. First, perhaps God is the... We're not told God hid the truth from them. So we, there are times God hid truths from people. We don't know this is one of them. It might be. Perhaps God hid this from them because they couldn't handle it yet. Another possibility is it was hidden from them because they simply couldn't believe it. What happened in the most famous time when Jesus told the disciples that he would be killed. Peter thought that was the time for him to do what with Jesus? Matthew 6, rebuke him, basically. Matthew 16, 22, Peter took Jesus aside. I mean, he kind of brings him away from the disciples to counsel him, right? Kind of explain to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. If you briefly look back at Luke 18, 31, look at me at Luke 18, 31. It says, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. That's true, but I want you to understand something. There were prophecies 
from the prophets that seemed mutually exclusive. You have Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, suffering servant, rejected, crucified. But you also had prophecies from the prophets about worshiped, adored, conquering king, ruling and reigning Messiah, right? So it's kind of like, how can you have a Messiah who's both rejected and adored, worshiped and killed, ruling and reigning and executed? Now, what, what do we know? We know there are two comings. We know Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, fulfilled in the first coming. Psalm 2, all of the ruling and reigning prophecies fulfilled in the second coming. But they didn't know that. And so what they did, because they couldn't embrace both sets of prophecies, was they swung the pendulum. I mean, which ones are you going to go with? Which Messiah do you want? You want the ruling and reigning one. So they swing the pendulum to the ruling and reigning Messiah. That's what they believe. So they could not believe all these prophecies or predictions from Jesus. Now, I want to conclude with this. In this morning's sermon, I discussed three verses that are commonly misunderstood. Now, I will be the first to say, I've committed my life to this in a sense. I mean, it's been 20 years of of studying, and it's a blessing, it's a joy to me, of studying God's word for a living. I hope I never take it for granted. You know, 20 to 40 hours per week of laboring in God's word. I will be the first to admit that there are definitely verses that can be confusing. We talked about a few, uh, one of them this morning, Luke 18, 27. What does that verse mean? And I hope now you understand. But I want to say this. The longer I study God's word, I also become even more convinced of this. The main things are the plain things, or the plain things are the main things. In other words, yeah, there are some confusing verses in Scripture, but there are some verses that are so abundantly clear, who could understand them? A child. The most important truths that God wants us to understand are simple to understand. Here's one of them, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That verse is beautiful. That verse is profound, but it is so simple that even children can understand it. So I'll say this. With God, it is possible for man to be saved. Without God, it is impossible for man to be saved. But because God loves us so much... He gave his son to die for our sins that we can have eternal life. And my prayer is that if you are saved, you grow in thankfulness for this truth. If you are unsaved, you will repent and believe in God's son for eternal life. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service, maybe with my son George. (laughs) And it would be a privilege for the two of us to speak with you. (laughs) Father, we thank you for the truths in your word. I thank you even for the difficult ones or the ones that we're straining to see. Spiritually speaking, we're straining to see them. I think about the end of 1 Corinthians 13 where it says things we only see dimly now or Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to you. But we recognize, Lord, that there are great, profound, beautiful, plain truths in your word. And I would ask that by your grace, we hold to them and believe them. And again, if there are any unbelievers here, that you would open their eyes spiritually to these truths, such as John 3, 16, and help us to walk in them, Lord. I thank you for the discussion with the disciples. I thank you for Peter that he went before us asking some of these questions that might be foolish, but they're the same ones that I've asked and the same ones many of us have asked. Lord, thank you for your responses. 
to them. I pray you bless our fellowship that follows, Lord, the potluck. Help us to look for new people. And we thank you for this time and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.